0: to our fourth session in the series that's the title on the screen behind me living right in a world that's gone wrong so I'll uh, review as quickly as I can a bit of what we've covered and then we'll jump into some new material today but welcome to everyone glad you're here wanted to make one announcement and that is about our Memorial Day picnic one week from tomorrow on Memorial Day at noon at the uh, Lake Erie Metro Park So that is a different location than we've had the last many years. For our Memorial Day picnic, we usually have it at Thorn Park at Telegraph and King. They're renovating that all summer, we're told. I didn't know there was enough stuff to renovate all summer, but uh, they are, I guess. So we can't have it there. So it's at Lake Erie Metro Park at noon is when we'll uh, start eating. You have to pay $5 to get in, so bear that in mind. So sorry about that. Um, you can bunch up with people. I told folks you can do what we used to do at the drive-in, you know, and hide in the trunk. But it's $5 per vehicle for you to go in. Back in the old days, in the, uh, for the, uh, it wasn't per vehicle. It was per person. That's why you, that's why you hid in the, in, the, uh, in the trunk. But anyway, so you can uh, do that any way you want, but come up with your 5 bucks, and that will be at noon. Now, we ask you to bring a side dish and a beverage. And that's it. The church will provide the hamburgers and the hot dogs. And this is new this year. The teens, the CBC teens, are providing the desserts. So we usually ask you to bring a side dish, a dessert, and a beverage. But it's just the side dish and the beverage. The teens are are providing the the desserts. Now, why are they doing this? Because they want money. That's why. Why do teens do anything? Because they want money. They want it for a good cause, though, and that is they want to go to camp. Uh, it's actually a leadership retreat that they're having down in Cincinnati, and they'll they'll have a great time. But they're trying to raise money for that, so it's for a worthy cause. And so for a donation, they are making the desserts. If you forget to bring your money, you know feel free to have dessert. But for whatever donation, so they're going to provide provide that uh, the desserts, and then you bring a side dish and a and a beverage for that. Okay. All right, that uh, covers our announcements. Then just uh, write down, if you would, the Memorial Day the Memorial Day picnic, and we'll look forward to a great time together. We've been looking at this subject, how to live right, living right in a world that has gone wrong. This is our fourth session, and in the three previous sessions, very quickly, we've defined what the world is. And the world, according to the Bible, is not primarily the, the earth, it's not the physical world where we live, but it is a system of values and priorities and desires and, and loves that are expressed in in culture and so i define worldliness this way worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture so any culture at any given place right now or at any time in human history is expressing uh... fallen values and that's what the bible describes as as worldliness so be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind romans twelve two And uh, we are called to keep ourselves unspotted from the world in James chapter 1 and verse 27. But we're not told to physically leave the world because the physical world is not the problem. It's the values, desires, allegiances, and priorities of the the world as expressed in, in culture. And so Jesus said, you are to be in the world, John chapter 17. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, verses 9 through 11, he makes very clear that uh, we cannot separate ourselves from the people of the world. That's an impossibility. And so, contrary to what many Christians have done over the years, the solution to worldliness is not isolation. Because the problem with worldliness is not the place. The problem is... The values, allegiances, desires, loves, priorities. And so Jesus says in John 17, you're to be in the world, but not of the world. Physically in it, but your values, priorities, desires, allegiances are derived from a source other than those of the world. In it, not of it. So there have been in... The history of the church, a number of attempts to try to get that relationship correct. Jesus says the correct way is be in and not of. But as I've told you, there are people who've tried to be not in and not of. That is, they want to display a different set of values, but they want to do it without worldlings. So they isolate themselves. This would be Amish, this would be monasticism. Not in and not of. But you can be both in and of, in the world and of the world. Who's that? That's your average pagan. In it, of it, love it. This is what we're about. Or you can be uh, not in the world, but of the world. That's the fourth possible relation. Not in it, but of it. And that's your average evangelical today. Have our own parallel world, have our own stuff that we do, but in terms of our values, our allegiances, our desires, very much like what the world has. Not in it, but of it. Okay? But Jesus says the, the right way is to be in it, not of it. Of it, And so that's the problem that we have in trying to live right in a world gone wrong, that we need to be in it, not of it, but that's much easier said than done. So I want to give you, I'd like to give you five things, okay, that some of them we've, we've covered. I'll just review them, and then we'll look at some new things. But the five things are several we've looked at. One is the issue. I'll call it the issue. The issue is we need to be in the world, not of the world. But then second is the problem. And the problem that we're faced with is, as I have laid out, is that the the world has no basis for determining what is right and wrong. And the world has no categories to differentiate between sin and suffering. And the world, therefore, has no clarity on ethical issues. So no basis for determining what's right and wrong. No ability to differentiate, distinguish between sin and suffering. Stuff I do versus stuff that's done to me. And no categories of, of, for ethics then. And we see that this confusion about, about ethics is seen in some of the words we use. So I said a couple of weeks ago, we use the word sick to refer to things that are done to us, but also to things we do. We use the same word. You know, if you're, if you're sick with a disease, we use sick one way. But if you're sick with a behavioral issue, we use the same word, but with some attitude. You know, you're sick. Not you, but you know, some zest to it, right? Why? Because the truth is, it, we live in a day because of this confusion of categories that it's all sick. It's all stuff somehow that's been done to us. So the issue is we need to be in the world, not of the world. But the problem is that the world, at least, has no basis for determining what's right and wrong, no categories to differentiate sin and suffering, no clarity, then, on ethical issues. Now, what's the reason? Issue, the problem, here's the reason they have the problem. We looked at this last week. Acts chapter 17 and Romans chapter 1 tell us why they have the problem. It is because they have rejected the God they know. If you were here last week, we talked about that. The world has rejected the God that they were made to know. We were made to know our Creator. We were made to know His voice. We still have the vestiges of the image of God in us. And so we still hear His voice, but because of indwelling sin, we hate His voice. And we reject it. So Romans chapter 1 and verse 28 says, Because they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God in their thinking. That's what it says. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God in their thinking. In other words, I don't want to think about God. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which ought not be done. We live in that world. But the reason that we live in that world, that is messed up, is because of what the Bible calls foolishness. Not not ignorance, foolishness. Failure to apply and appropriate what we know. We know we are creatures made by the Creator. But we don't want to know that. Because that renders us accountable. Rejecting that renders us foolish says the Bible. So you've got the issue, be in the world, not of the world. You've got the problem, no basis for right and wrong, no categories to differentiate sin and suffering, no clarity then about ethical issues. You've got the reason for the problem, which you could summarize as just, as just foolishness. And so Francis Schaefer, the late, great Francis Schaefer, one of the many people you know I want to meet when I get to heaven, died in I think 1983 after writing 22 really cool books that I have in five volumes and if you don't have Francis Schaeffer's books I recommend you get them if you're interested in any of this stuff but he wrote a book kind of his magnum opus book Uh, it was called How Shall We Then Live question mark and the title suggests it all The then part. How shall we then live? Well then, in light of what you accept as being true, world, how can we live? How shall we then live on the basis of the presuppositions that you accept as being true? And he wrote this this fabulous book about that. Uh, Charles Colson, who just died, what, a month ago? Within last month, Charles Colson uh, wrote an updated, sort of an updated version of that book, called "How Now Shall We Live?" <laughs> and the idea was just to update it. You know, the, the thing that Schaefer said in the '80s is still true now. <laughs> we haven't corrected the foundational problems, and therefore, we are still we are still stuck with the the results. Which then brings me to, you've got the issue is that we need to be in the world, not of the world. You've got the problem, the world can't figure it out. The reason they can't figure it out is because the world is foolish. And then fourthly, here are the consequences. The consequences. So what are the consequences of not being able to figure it out? Of being foolish? Of not having categories of right and wrong? What are the consequences of that? <laughs> well, just step outside today. Turn on the TV, read the newspaper, turn on the news, you have it all around you, do you not? The, the consequences. But I want to break down those consequences a bit. The consequences are, are really these, in a nutshell. If you've misdiagnosed the problem, what, what's going to happen? You're going to come up with the wrong solutions. The consequences of the foolishness of the world... Is that the world proposes false solutions because they've misdiagnosed the problem. The consequence of getting it wrong, not not knowing the not dealing with the reason that renders us foolish, causes us, results in the proposal of false solutions. Because we got the problem wrong. Now, what are those false solutions? False political solutions. You want to live right in a world gone wrong? First understand what's gone wrong. That's what I'm trying to give you. This is what's gone wrong. We have destroyed the foundation. We've destroyed the basis. We don't know the reasons. And so we come up with false solutions. In a number of areas. One of those is political so, this is my chance to make everybody mad. By waxing political. But well, we come up with false solutions. One of those is to think for a moment that politics is the solution. I'm here to tell you, friends, Mitt Romney is not the solution. And Barack Obama is not the solution. And there ain't a guy or gal walking around right now that's the solution. It's a mistake, it's a false solution to think that politics is going to fix stuff. But people think that. It's the reason you get so jazzed about it. You know, it's the reason you guys fight about it. You know, I gave up fighting about that a long time ago once I realized that ain't the solution anyway. Why am I fighting about something that ain't the solution? All right? And I'm just telling you, friends, in this political year, give it up. Give up the fighting about it with each other because it ain't the solution. If you think it is the solution, well, you'll go down a bunch of really uh, bad places. You'll think it's the solution if you think the problem is that people are deprived rather than depraved. You'll think politics is the solution if you believe that people are deprived rather than depraved. The Bible teaches that the problem is, as we're going to see, internal to us. Pogo, in his famous statement, we have met the enemy and he is who? But we're not about to admit that. It's it's not us, it's external to us it's not that we're depraved it's that we have been deprived and the political solution therefore is to provide what has been deprived of, you've been deprived of how's that working out I'm just saying we've got a lot of human history how's that working out you know and, and so pass more programs pass more laws give people more stuff people will get better So, you first. I'm not buying it. The reason I'm not buying it is because the Bible doesn't say that's the problem. The problem is not we're deprived. It is an internal problem. We are depraved. This is why, and this is where I make everybody mad, or some people mad. This is why I'm a conservative. Because I believe the problem is internal. Internal. And I believe liberals are evil. And I believe conservatives are evil, too. They're all a bunch of evil sinners. Just like me. I am, too. So then why be a conservative? If for are all, then, then why be anything? Here's why. Because conservatives won't tell you this, but this is the foundation of being a political conservative. You think people are evil. And so you don't want to give them more stuff. Because they won't use their stuff in the way they're supposed to use it. Well, then, then why are Republicans, guys like Mitt Romney, why are they very much capitalists? Why are they very much free enterprise people? Here's why: because they believe people are evil. He won't tell you this, but he believes people are evil. Our system, capitalism, is based on the idea that people are sinful. Have you ever considered that? If people only worked hard enough to make what they need, capitalism doesn't work. The only reason it works is because people will work really hard to make more than they need, and you know why they'll do that? Because there's something wrong with them. And the thing that's wrong with them is they're greedy. Greedy. So does it... So you now have to, what you do is you channel their greed into a system that produces stuff. That's what we've got. Adam Smith said as much. 1776, Wealth of Nations, that was his book. And he said that the market will run by the, in, the invisible hand, he called it. You know what that invisible hand is? Greed. So here you are as a preacher saying greed's a good thing. No, I'm not. I'm saying greed's a thing. It's a real thing. It's a universal thing. And because it is, that's the reason capitalism works. It's because you harness the greed to channel it into benefits. That's exactly what our founding fathers thought. It's exactly what they thought. That you could channel what they called private vices into public benefits. It's the reason America has been fabulously wealthy. Because people are greedy. Now, does it blow up? Absolutely. They get really greedy. Wall Street gets really greedy. You know, what is the stu- what's the instrument? What is it, the, uh, the derivatives thing? You know, credit swaps, default credit swaps. I don't even know what it is. But it's evil, I know that. You know, so in t- late 2008, stuff is ready to collapse because of these instruments that have been created to satisfy the insatiable greed. So we need checks on those people. I'm, a, I'm okay with regulations because they're greedy. Let them get in there and play, but keep them in some bounds but the truth is they always try to find ways to get outside the bounds because they're greedy so here, this is also the reason that I'm a preacher instead of a politician I initially wanted to go into politics some of you know that and then I realized I have to tell people you know you're really evil <laughs> I'd love to have your vote on November 4th <laughs> you are an evil depraved swine and I thought, you know, it's just not going to win me too many votes. So I'll get a church and I'll tell you guys every Sunday, you're an evil, depraved swine. <laughs> but I'm, in all seriousness, that's the truth of the matter. People are depraved rather than deprived. But if you don't get that, you will think that politics can be the solution. Politics is not the solution. You will propose other solutions if you get the diagnosis wrong. Sociological solutions. And so the solution is for us to learn to live with each other in society, to learn to make trade-offs because if I don't treat you right, you won't treat me right. So we need to teach our kids to, to do that. We need to learn to do that. And if we can, if we can structure things in a way and, and inculcate in people The idea that life is full of trade offs, and if I want benefits from you, then I've got to be kind to you, and then it'll sort of work. But depraved people don't get that. I mean, it all sounds good, but if you're depraved, if you're sinful, you don't get that. I mean, any of you that have kids in school, or remember having kids in school, or remember being a kid in school, you know that the minute you get other people together, And you say, Johnny and Susie, there's trade-offs. And you have to share, you know, that, that what do you get? Bangs over the head. Mine. Everything's mine. The kid never heard the word mine. But the first word out of their mouth is not mama, not daddy. It's mine. Because that's what sinners do. Now, I'm not against teaching sharing. I'm very much for it. I think it's all good, it's all right, but it's not the solution. If you think a sociology sociology is the solution, you will pin your hopes on education. Educating with what? What are you going to? What are we going to teach our children? What are we teaching our children? We're teaching our children that they are, in effect, a blob in the cosmos. In, another, in an impersonal, meaningless world. So who am I accountable to? How does my life have meaning when I inevitably have the struggles and the angst that goes with adolescence in the teenage years? Those of you that are teachers see it all the time with these, with these young people. In our educational system, you'll get arrested if you give them the right solution. But we're going to pin our hopes on education not me. It's not a political solution. It's not a sociological solution. It's not a, not a psychological solution. So, what we need is Maslow's, some of you know that name, hierarchy of needs and he's got a hierarchy of needs and if you get your basic needs met food, shelter, security you can ultimately start to interact with people the way you should and you can achieve the, high, the highest point at the pinnacle called self-actualization right wrong I mean look at how many people have food, shelter and security I mean you know just, just watch you know 48 hours or Dateline NBC. How many people have it made and they kill somebody? What's that about? I mean, self-actualization, are you kidding? So we look for political solutions, sociological solutions, psychological solutions. Now here's what they all have in common. The problem in all of those is located outside of me. And therefore the solution is something that has to happen outside of me, around me. Now you say with psychology, clearly that's that's internal. But remember, you've got to have all this external stuff first before any of that happens. So the problem is defined as outside of me. In all of these, political, sociological, psychological approach. It's all outside and non-spiritual. Outside of me and not a spiritual problem. Well, how could it be a spiritual problem? We've rejected God. So there is no God, practically speaking, with whom I need to interact, before whom I am accountable. So the problem is located outside of me, it's external, and it is non-spiritual. And even many of the spiritual solutions that are offered are defined as external to me. Here's what I mean. If you turn on the TV and you watch the televangelists, which I wouldn't recommend you do, warning. If you do, just do it for research purposes, based on this class. Better yet, just take my word for it. But the TV evangelists are constantly finding demons everywhere. And the solution is to cast out demons. These guys can cast out demons, say they. So your personal problems are demon problems. They talk about, I'm not making this up, things like the demon of anger. You're possessed of the demon of anger, and what you need is to have the demon of anger removed from you, cast out of you. Notice, it's a, it's a spiritual solution, a demon that needs to be cast out, but it's still something that's come into you from the outside. A demon of anger. The Bible never talks about a demon of anger, ever, ever addresses behavioral issues, ever addresses behavioral issues as if a demon made me do it. Never. When Jesus cast out demons, and he did it a lot, when he cast out demons, it was not for people who were involved in moral evil. It was for people who were involved in what one author calls situational evil. That is, they were victims of living in an evil world. And so they needed healing. And he would heal them. But it was not moral evil. The solution to moral evil was always a relationship with God. Always. And so you've even got people who give the spiritual dimension its due, but they still place the problem in a controlling demon. I worked with a guy years ago, and he found out I was training for ministry, and so he wanted to talk to me because he was a Christian guy, but it turns out he was one of these televangelist supporting crazy guys. And he believed in demons all over the place. He started to tell me this, and he said that he battled a demon of anger. This uh, fellow's name was Cass. We talked about this for a while. I tried to talk Cass out of the idea that there's such a thing as a demon of anger. And then finally, I said to him, after he would not listen to me, I said, Cass, I believe you do have a demon of anger. I know his name. It's Cass. The problem is you. And you can try to locate the problem someplace else or with someone else all you want, but the Bible places it with you and with me. So all of these solutions place the problem outside of us in a non-spiritual way even those that proffer a spiritual solution attribute it to a controlling demon very often. And so then what what are we left with? Well, we're left with a situation in which people don't know which way to turn they don't know what to what to do and as a result psalm 23 gets rewritten you all know psalm 23 the lord is my shepherd i shall not be in want he makes me he leads me beside quiet waters he restores my soul this this beautiful care personal care of the shepherd to the sheep in leading them through life, even through the valley of the shadow of death. But this is the way that psalm gets rewritten. When we can't define the problem correctly and therefore come up with false solutions. Instead of the Lord is my shepherd, here's how it goes. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist, I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I'm going to keep reading, but let me just stop there. There's a song that's fairly current. I'm always behind the times, but fairly current. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. But if it makes you happy, then why are you so sad? And that's exactly, that is exactly the situation that people find themselves in. I'm chasing my tail for what I think will make me happy, what I think the solution is, but I constantly find myself confused. Why don't asking why don't things really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling and devoid? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. That is, that is really sad, isn't it? And that is really accurate. That's why Thoreau was correct when he said most people lead lives of quiet desperation. That's the situation most people are in. Suffering, but suffering because we're in a world gone wrong, but they have misdefined the problem and therefore have come up with false and always disappointing solutions. Now, here's the good news. You say, cool, how about that? Some good news. The good news is the, gospel, the, the very word gospel you all know means good news. And, and we live in a relatively prosperous country, <laughs> you know, less than it was five years ago or ten years ago, but still relatively prosperous. Relatively good times, but most people are a mess. But the good news is the gospel is good news, light into that darkness. And, and I believe, I believe with all of my heart, this is not just preacher speak. <laughs> this one guy said, I'm not preaching at you, I'm telling you the truth. Those should be the same. But it's not just preacher speak. I believe that the gospel will shine bright into this darkness. And the reason I want to do this series is because I want us to have a sense of understanding. I want us to have a sense of empathy for the problems that people have, the places that they are in, the situations that they face, and to understand they ain't got no answers. The world doesn't have any answers, friends. Only the gospel has the answers. We've got the answers. And because it has gotten dark, and because it has gotten thirsty, and because it has gotten really ugly, because we have rejected the foundation that our grandparents and, grand, and great-grandparents took for granted, we're seeing the consequences of that. But we've got the solution. And it's in the good news of the gospel. You see, I said to you that the world knows it's in a mess. I've been saying that for the previous three weeks. I say again now, we all agree something's wrong. But the world doesn't know how to define it. And they misdiagnose it and thus give uh, a false prescription for it. We all know there's a problem. and, And one of the reasons the world can't get it right is because they have no categories for suffering versus sin. And if you can't get that right, then you cannot apply the solution that is the gospel. But see, here's the good news. The Bible has categories for both of those. Now, in our remaining minutes, I want you to take a look at a passage. In your Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I mentioned Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes last week, and... Solomon experienced more of life than any, most people would in 20 lifetimes or more. And he wrote about it in a book called Ecclesiastes. And he said, trying to find fulfillment in all the stuff that you think will make you happy but really makes you sad, <laughs> and he lists what they all are, sex and money and power and, and pleasure. He, he did them all. And he keeps saying meaningless. All of them are meaningless. They are like chasing after the wind. But here's what it says in chapter 9 and verse 3. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. Now, let me just stop there. In those two lines, you have suffering, situational evil. There is evil, bad stuff in everything that happens under the sun. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon uses that phrase, under the sun, under the sun. Why? Because if this is all there is, under the sun, Without someone who's above the sun, then we're in big trouble. But under the sun, just confined to this rock in the solar system, in the universe, if that's all there is, there is all this evil under the sun, that's situational e- evil, that is suffering, that's stuff that happens to us just because we live in a fallen world. But then he goes on to say, the hearts of men, moreover, that is in addition to that, are full of evil. And there's madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Do you see in one verse, the Bible has both of those categories? Situational evil and suffering. Stuff that's done to us because we live in a fallen world. But it also says, and moreover, our hearts are evil. Now, friends, I'm telling you, you cannot find a system anywhere. Good luck. Keep looking. Political, psychological, sociological, that takes both of those categories seriously and has a solution for both of those categories stuff that's done to us and the stuff that we do and if you don't if you don't have a a, a way to categorize and differentiate between those two things then it's just, it's confusing and let me explain how the Bible says there's stuff I do that's evil stuff you do that's evil and it's you and it's in you but it also says there's stuff that other people do that's evil. And living in a fallen world and, and catastrophes and mishaps, those all happen. Those are all evil too. And those all happen to me. So stuff happens to me and there's stuff that I do. But if you don't have, if you don't have the Bible as your authority and as your source of truth, then how do you differentiate those? I mean, how do I hold somebody accountable for personal moral evil if really what they are is a complex of chemicals and synapses firing in the brain and they're just a machine that's malfunctioning? How do I hold you accountable for that more personal moral evil if you're simply a machine that ain't working right? have a difficult time with that, aren't I? We do it. We know we have to. We throw people in jail. We execute people. We know it's evil, but we don't have a category for calling it evil. We know it's bad. We know it's wrong. If it's, the chemicals aren't working right, then what am I going to prescribe? What's my solution going to be for you and your behavioral problems? I'm asking. My first resort is going to be the pharmacy. You see, it's not first a spiritual problem. It's a chemical problem. This is what the world is. This is what the world does. First resort. It's a chemical problem. You need a pharmacy. And so, as a result, people are going to be given false solutions. There's something wrong with you that can't be fixed. You live in a world in which you are victim to stuff just going haywire, things just snapping, and that's why you do what you do. What kind of comfort is that? And yet that's the world's solution. Now, as a result of that, the world does a couple of things that I'll mention to you And then we'll pursue next week. As a result of the world not being able to differentiate, as the Bible does, through the good news of the gospel, between personal evil and situational evil, because we can't do that, we wind up not being able to distinguish between two other things. Let me give them to you, and we'll look at it next week. The first one is power versus authority. Power and authority. So how are we going to fix things? We need to get enough people so that we have enough power to force what we think is the solution on other people. This is why politics is the solution for a lot of people, because power. But see, power and authority aren't the same thing, are they? See, the Nazis had power. But they weren't authorized to do what they did. That's what authority means. You're authorized. Authority is the the authorization to exercise power. But power absent authority leaves people then grabbing for the most money, grabbing for the most representatives so that we can have the power to, to change things. And then a related problem that people have is this. As a result of that, failure to differentiate between power and authority because we don't have an authorization, because we don't have a source, because we've rejected God, the king becomes law rather than the law being king. Francis Schaeffer, and I'll finish with this. Francis Schaeffer used this Latin term over and over again in his books. Lex Rex, which is Lex, which is the law. Rex, king, the law is king. He said, but when you reject God as our creator and God as our authority, instead of Lex Rex, you have Rex Lex. The king becomes the law. Whoever has the power has the authority. And that's a world that you don't want to live in, but it's the world that we are moving toward. Now, the gospel has the solution because the gospel alone sees the problem clearly, defines the issues clearly, differentiates situational evil versus personal evil, and then provides the solution to both. We'll continue that then next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to grope in the darkness. And the fact is, we live in a world that is dark. Despite the trappings, despite the happy faces, most men live lives of quiet desperation. And most people fit into the anti-Psalm 23 that we looked at. We thank you that you have not left us, though, to grope in this darkness, but that the gospel, your Bible, your word, pierces the darkness with light. We thank you for giving us the light and the ability to see that light through Jesus. And we thank you for allowing us to be your ambassadors of light into this otherwise dark world. I pray, Lord, that you will help us not to despair, but rather help us to see that in the midst of all of this difficulty, The gospel stands alone and apart from the world's solutions as the solution. And I pray that you will help us to not despair because of what is going on around us, because we know that all of it is according to your calendar, all in your control. And therefore, we never need despair. But Lord, we are concerned, to be sure, about our world, about our friends and our neighbors and our family members. We are concerned because the problem is misdiagnosed and therefore incorrect solutions are offered, even harmful solutions are offered. Help us, Lord, this week to contemplate the many ways that we are are given false presentations. Help us to see how the gospel is different, diametrically opposed to many of the solutions, most of the solutions that are offered. Help us to apply the truth of the gospel, the light of the gospel to our own lives and to the situations in which we find ourselves and those that you give us opportunity to speak with. Grant us safety this week, we ask you. Bring us back together next week, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.